As we learned in the last episode, August 28th, 1992 marked the official conclusion of the Charlottetown Accord, but just two months later, on October 26th, the Canadian people voted against the Accord in Canada's first ever national referendum on a package of sweeping constitutional changes. And so in this episode, we're going to look all too briefly at a few of the key factors that can help us to understand this turnaround and understand how Canada went from a unanimous intergovernmental deal in August to the resounding rejection of that deal in October by the Canadian people. This is Charlottetown, a podcast series that presents some of the stories and the debates behind Canada's first and still only constitutional referendum. This series is brought to you by the Centre for Constitutional Studies, a hub for research and public education at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. I'm your series host, Dr. Richard Maley, and today's guests are Jamie Cameron, Kathy Brock, Daniel Turp, Deborah Coyne, and Peter Russell. So the first question that we have to deal with in this episode is why? Why was there a national referendum on the Charlottetown Accord? And the first thing to point out on this front is that legally, adding the provisions of the Accord to the Constitution did not require the direct consent of the Canadian people, but only required the consent of Parliament and all the provincial legislatures. And so what this already tells us is that the referendum was a step that the federal government chose, which raises the question again, of why. Why would the government choose this extra step and choose to make the amendment process even more arduous? So to answer this question, there were actually a bunch of factors that led the government in this direction, but the most important one was almost certainly its desire to avoid the mistakes of Meech Lake. And in this regard, as you might recall from episode two, the big criticism that was levelled at Meech was that the Canadian people hadn't been directly involved or consulted. They'd just been presented with this deal that was cooked up by Mulroney and co behind closed doors. And so in 1992, the government called a referendum in part to avoid getting hit with this criticism again and to ensure that the backlash against Meech wouldn't also become the backlash against Charlottetown. With this in mind then, the decision was made Canadians would now have a direct say on whether to pass the Charlottetown Accord. And initially, things actually looked pretty good for the Accord's proponents, with opinion polls showing the yes camp ahead or competitive in most provinces. But of course, this didn't last. And so what I want to do now is to look at just a few of the factors that turned the tides against the Accord, starting with a look at the Accord itself through the eyes of Professor Jamie Cameron. It was a Herculean effort uh, putting the Charlottetown Agreement together because there were so many cross-cutting and competing interests and constituencies that had to be addressed. And so the difficulty with the Accord was that it gave something to everyone, but at the same time not to give everyone all that they wanted because it couldn't do that. And so the line they tried to negotiate was between giving too many concessions to certain parts of the accord or certain stakeholders um, because that would alienate 
other stakeholders and constituencies. So they had to not give too much away to some because that would have um, a negative impact on others. But at the same time, they had to address the different constituencies that were demanding attention in the accord. And so it became unwieldy. And the other thing about the accord was that uh, it came as a take it or leave it kind of proposition. Because for the accord to work, um, the, the, the Canadian community voting in the referendum had to buy it hook, line, and sinker. Uh, as as um, former Premier Peterson used to say, we, we all have to put some water in our wine. And so that was the, that was the compromise that the Charlottetown Accord rested on. But it was, it was vulnerable because those who were not completely satisfied with their part of the accord could pull that part out and make it a basis for opposing the Charlottetown Accord and for a no vote. And so, so there was a lot of, put it this way, there was a lot of ammunition in the accord for um, the no vote because there were a lot of different things in the accord that could be opposed on principled grounds. The hope of, the, uh, of those who negotiated the accord was that Maybe there would be enough generosity uh, in the Canadian community uh, that Canadians would be able to accept the parts of the accord that were not ideal from their po point of view in the interest of allowing the country and the constitution to move forward. As Professor Cameron just explained, the Accord's status as a vast package of clunky compromises and trade-offs provided a lot of ammunition for potential opponents, but the problem was arguably as much about what the Accord left unsaid as it was about what it said. Uh, across a lot of different parts of the Accord, it was a bit of a leap of faith. Uh, there were just so many things in there, in the Accord, so many parts to the Accord, and so much of it uh, was uncertain. No, it was uncertain how the Canada Clause would be interpreted. It was uncertain what the changes to the Senate and the House of Commons would look like. It was uncertain what was going to happen with Aboriginal self-government. There was a lot. There was a lot of uncertainty that was inherent in the Charlottetown Accord itself, and to ask Canadians to say yes to all parts of the accord. I mean, it was just a very, very big ask. So we heard repeatedly from the folks we talked to for the series that the accord itself was the big problem and that the Yes campaign was always going to be swimming against a very strong tide of opposition for this reason. That said, as mentioned already, the polls did initially look okay for the Yes camp, and so you can't underestimate the role that specific actors and events played during the referendum campaign. And there was arguably no one who more effectively galvanised opposition to the Accord than the guy who kicked off this whole story, former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. Pierre Trudeau had a, a, a tremendous effect. Um, that cannot be underestimated. When he came out at the on Meech Lake, and he was opposed, um, 
that reached a lot of Canadians, a lot of liberal supporters, liberal support in the West that existed. And he spoke to a lot of people who really embraced the values that we had entrenched in 1982. Same thing when he spoke out during Charlottetown and when he went before the Joint Senate House of Commons Committee, I think it was. Again, he had a tremendous effect. We know this because if you look at polling numbers, when he speaks out in both of these rounds of constitutional talks, you see support across the country immediately begin to drop. And I think it's because of the vision of Canada that he was putting forward. Pierre Trudeau had been opposed to the recognition of nations. And the reason why was because when he was growing up in Quebec, he had seen discrimination against people of different backgrounds. And he did not want that to happen in Canada, which is why he was so much in favor of having a Charter of Rights and Freedoms and one that was based on individual rights. He made concessions so that collective rights would be recognized in part, but that was in order to achieve a constitutional deal. And in his writings on federalism and nationalism, he was very explicit that you don't want to go down the national route, the identity route, or you entrench the basis for divisions and potentially discrimination in society. So I think when he spoke out, the people he really reached were people who believed in individual rights and in the constitutional vision as we achieved it in 1982. He saw 1987 as undoing a lot of the achievements he had made as a prime minister and achievements that Canada had made together by bringing patriating the constitution. So that was Professor Kathy Brock. And to follow up on what she just said, it's 100% true that when you look at opinion polls immediately after Trudeau speaks out against Charlottetown, support for the accord plummets. It actually plummets basically overnight by about 20 points in some places, which is evidence that at this point, Trudeau remained incredibly influential across much of the country. And in the Charlottetown campaign, his big moment came on October 1st, less than a month before the referendum, when he tore the accord to shreds, metaphorically, during a speech at a Chinese restaurant in Montreal. And as Professor Daniel Turp explains, such interventions from Trudeau had become very much par for the course. Uh, Monsieur, Tr Monsieur Trudeau was very good when it came to this to doing spectacular things, you know, whether it's uh, let's just watch me for the October crisis to this calling Monsieur Bourassa at one point, which was so disgusting, a manger de hot dog and what he did at La Maison du Aigrol. But you know what, what happened is it galvanized federalists that were against this, this uh, agreement and, and, and those who didn't want a more decentralized Canada, although I don't think this accord would have decentralized Canada, would have centralized it even more, in, in my opinion. And that was the opinion in, in Quebec. But again, Monsieur Trudeau, like for me, he said, this is not consistent with the way I view Canada. You know, I, I put, I patriot the constitution, I have a charter of rights, 
you just don't touch that. It's 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 okay as it is. You, there's no need for constitutional change. Uh, you know, let's just go ahead. We don't need change. Don't change that constitutional architecture that I I've built and is which is good for Canada. And so vote no. And he he campaigned and then he had a lot of followers and and he played a key role in having that agreement. You know, uh, um, you know, brought brought down by by people not only in Quebec but in in, in the rest of Canada. Now, interestingly, on the same day when Trudeau gave his infamous speech against the Accord in Montreal, the Accord's prospects took a second serious hit in Quebec when transcripts of a very damaging conversation, the so-called Wilhelmy Tremblay transcripts, were finally published in full after the expiration of an injunction granted by the Quebec courts. So what exactly were the Wilhelmy Tremblay transcripts and why were they so damaging? Yeah, well, uh, Madame Willemy was a very, very uh, uh, able and, and distinguished civil servant that was one of the uh, key advisors to Robert Bourassa. And André Tremblay was a colleague of mine at the Université de Montréal, a professor of law, of constitutional law. I was his teaching assistant at one point, you know. And, uh, and uh, Monsieur Tremblay and Madame Willemy had this conversation at one point uh, during the, the negotiations and said Monsieur uh, Bourassa had caved in and he was weak. And that conversation was intercepted. There was someone who taped it and it became public. And they even sold the document that reprinted the verbatim of this conversation. So that happened during the campaign and it didn't help at all the yes side because people were told that Monsieur, Bouchard, Monsieur Bourassa had caved in and that his... his uh, demands or changes to the original uh, accord were, were, were not accepted and were not uh, seen as acceptable by other provinces and, and, and Mr. Mulroney, who at the end sided with the other provinces. So the Wilhelmy Tremblay affair damaged the accord standing in Quebec and Trudeau's intervention damaged its standing elsewhere in Canada. But beyond these body blows, the accord was being chipped away at every day by an exceptionally diverse coalition of actors who were united momentarily by their shared sense that the accord was a step in the wrong direction for Canada. You know, the, the thing about the, the opposition to the accord was that it came from a variety of different perspectives and stakeholders and um, each of those uh, who were opposed to the accord was able to make a particular argument that stuck with a certain number of uh, constituents in the community. But then there was kind of a compounding of opposition across those different um, those different points of view that were opposed to the accord. So. Uh, again, I said that in a very abstract and non-concrete way, but the National Action Committee was very important in this campaign. Uh, they were, played a very, very important role. Uh, others uh, at the political level, like Preston Manning, Bloc Québécois, and there were also uh, the talking heads, the academics. So there were those who were in positions of public leadership who... Uh, were able to command attention 
in uh, debates and public forums and in the press and so on who were strongly opposed to the accord. And those voices were um, heard and listened to within the democratic community. And I sort of think, um, again, just to, I, I think that it, it was a case of, um, it was a case of momentum against the accord building throughout the referendum campaign because of the composition and nature of the various voices opposed to the accord. It's like a chorus. <laughs> As with the Meech Lake process, one crucial voice in this anti-Charlottetown chorus was Deborah Coyne, who agreed with Professor Cameron that opposing the accord effectively meant making a range of different pitches for different audiences. I guess at the beginning, the reason why I thought it was going to be uh, end was because of the confusion, because of putting everything in. Uh, and that I, I felt that, so, so whenever I was asked questions about any particular element, uh, I would raise immediately the problems with XYZ and say, that is exactly why we can't have this in this huge package. Because lots of people would react to bits and pieces of it. And I think what we were able to convey was the fact that um, there, there was just too much in here. So that you just had to raise that doubt in people. And I, I, I lost a lot of weight during, <laughs> during the referendum. And I went into this little place to get my get something adjusted. I, you know, and it was a lovely Greek woman. She, was, you know, she said, hey, um, oh, I saw you on TV. Uh, she said, I didn't really understand what you're saying, but you really seem to know what you're talking about. So I'm going to vote no. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that is exactly kind of what was happening. It was impossible to understand the, the, the intricacies. And, and even though to the men that all signed this in the end or whatever, uh, they all thought, oh, well, we got, you know, Clyde Wells could say, well, we got Senate reform. We got this and that. Now, people didn't see it that way. I mean, there, nobody wanted one single thing enough to agree to everything else. So the important point here is that because the accord was so multifaceted, because it was a product of complex trade-offs and compromises, opponents just had to divert attention away from the thing that a particular community got and onto the sacrifices that had been made to get that thing. So Ms. Coy mentioned Senate reform here, and this is a great example, because as you'll recall, getting Senate reform for the West had meant giving House of Commons seats and hence federal power to Quebec. So for the new camp, it was really just a question of emphasising and drawing attention to these sorts of sacrifices. And when this was done effectively, the only way that the Yes camp could really respond was by playing up the key danger, and indeed the existential danger, of a no vote. Well, I mean, at the time, I mean, it's really hard to capture it uh, so many years later. At the time, there was a very, very high degree of worry uh, that Quebec would leave Canada. Very, very high degree of worry. Um, and um, so, so that was obviously uh, a fairly um, uh, important consideration. But uh, the other part of it was that um, it just seemed to me that the Charlottetown Accord represented an opportunity um, to, for, for a certain amount of healing on the 
constitutional file and is represented an opportunity to move things forward. I would be the first to say that the Charlottetown Accord was far from perfect. Um, you know, I certainly, uh, I certainly didn't uh, say what I really thought of the Canada Clause, because if I were drafting a constitution, I would not uh, come up with anything like the Canada Clause. But, but the question for me was whether when you look at the package as a whole and you look at it in its entirety and you look at the circumstances of the, of the country and you look at the constitutional crisis that we were in at the time, the question taking all those factors into account was whether uh, the price of approving the Charlottetown Accord was too high. And my answer to that was no. I thought my thought was that even with its imperfections and messy parts and not knowing what the um, what the reformed Senate was really going to look like with all of those doubts, I still thought it was the right thing to do to move ahead. So I talked to Professor Peter Russell about this as well. And like Professor Cameron, he identified the prospect or the risk of Quebec's secession and the breakup of the country as the overriding factor that influenced his personal support for the Charlottetown Accord. Well, I was still worried, with my last moments of worry, that uh, if we don't pull this off, the country will come apart. Uh, and this is the best way of keeping a country I love together. Uh, I think I was wrong about that. Uh, we didn't pass it in a country, uh, which is this 28 years later, seems to me pretty firm. Uh, so my fear uh, was uh, not well, as it turned out, not well founded. But I did have that fear, as I think many people on the yes side in, a, in my province, Ontario, uh, which voted uh, a small, small majority of people in my province were like me, voted yes. Uh, and I think that was the key to our thinking. This, this is the best we can do. And we better do it. So further on in our conversation, Professor Russell talked more about the role that shared fear, like the fear of Quebec secession, can play in galvanizing support for a constitutional accord. And he drew a fascinating distinction between the Canadian experience with Charlottetown and the South African experience when they passed their post-apartheid constitution in the mid-1990s. You can get popular participation in a very, very... Uh, big constitutional change if the majority of all the people on all sides are convinced that the alternative to an agreement is civil war or succession. And in Canada, we always thought succession was a real possibility and that might persuade English Canadians to be more compromising because they wanted to keep the country together. but. By the time of the Charlottetown Accord, and there's a lot of data on this, the polls show English Canadians were not convinced that Quebec uh, was about to succeed even if it didn't get what it wanted at the constitutional table. And there was really no danger of civil war. Whereas the, the counterexample internationally is South Africa. 
where they it was clear if there's no constitutional compromise, uh, there will be a civil war, and there'll be a bloody civil war. And that's what brought about a huge and popular constitutional change South Africa. So I, I picked South Africa out as the uh, exception that proves the rule. You, you have to have that real fear of civil war, a real uh, the country breaking up. Uh, to persuade people to give up their their own localized identities. Now, there's a flip side to this, because although shared fear can unite a divided population, the use of fear for political purposes can also make people feel like they're being threatened or bullied or manipulated. And as Professor Cameron notes, there was a sense of this, at least for some people, during the Charlottetown campaign. People don't want to feel bullied. They don't want to feel like they're being, um, like their choice is being taken. Their choice about the referent about the vote is being taken away because um, because they're essentially being coerced to say yes. That's too strong. That's too strong uh, a word to use. But I think there was a sense that um, the leadership was pushing an agreement that people didn't like. And whether that um, was aggravated by uh, former Prime Minister Mulroney's um, statements and gestures, I can't recall. Um, but I think that was definitely, uh, definitely um, part of the dynamic. This leads very neatly to the final factor that may have influenced the Accords fate, and that's the Prime Minister, Brian Mulroney. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, Mulroney's approval ratings never recovered after the failure of Meech Lake. And one of the things that some of the public consultations of the early 90s revealed was the extent of public anger at the Prime Minister, which meant that Mulroney's association with the deal was always going to be a challenge for the yes side, because there was a risk that Canadians would see the referendum as a referendum on his leadership, and that they would effectively throw the baby, meaning the accord, out with the bathwater, meaning Mulroney. Now, in addition to this risk, we heard a lot of criticism of Mulroney and his strategy and his behaviour in our interviews for this series, which was very much expected. But we also heard from folks who were willing to reflect sympathetically on what Mulroney was trying to do for the country and why he was trying so desperately to do it. And Professor Cathy Brock was one such voice. Brian Mulroney was a tra transactional leader. He was someone who was a deal maker, a negotiator, conciliator. So he didn't prize his own personal perspectives above others. But it, he knew the art of the deal, and that's what he was, and that was why he was so successful in Meech Lake. But it doesn't mean that he didn't have a vision. Because ultimately, he thought by getting a deal, he could put forward that vision. And that was of a Canada in which Quebec feels that it is a full participant. And that was something he really took to heart. As someone who had grown up with Irish Catholic roots in Quebec, he could always act as a bridge between the Anglophone and Francophone community. And his vision, in part, was seeing 
those two, two communities brought together and Canada to be a functioning whole. He thought that was unfinished business right from 1867 that Trudeau had undercut in 1982. And he was bringing back and he thought he could get this deal and get Canada to be united again. That was important. And that's why he took the death of Meech Lake very, very hard. So I find this to be a really interesting reflection on Mulroney's motivations and his legacy. But just before we ended our interview, Professor Brock added one, I think, really crucial qualification. I think I mentioned Robert Reich in his uh, writings before, but one of the things that he noted, and he was talking about in the late 80s and the 1990s about the United States primarily, but it also applied to Canada, was that a lot of our leaders were engaging in a more, in a form of transactional politics. And they were positioning organizations, positioning their governments to get more resources, more um, allocation of goods to meet the needs of their community, rather than espousing full-out visions. And so he's very critical of um, university leaders for doing this, but also political leaders. And he said, the, the one of the ways that they really failed was to find that compelling rationale that motivated people, that incentivized them to go out and to think in terms that were beyond self-interest into the collective whole. And I think that was one thing that we saw happen during Meechlake and Charlottetown, is we looked at positioning organizations instead of how to make everyone fit together into a vision that would carry us forward and be compelling and keep us united when things got tough. So Professor Brock's comments take us back to the problems with the Accord itself and to the fact that on most accounts, the Accord lacked the type of coherent vision that could have made it something more than just a big bag of compromises. And it's maybe this lack of vision more than anything else that explains the Accord's ultimate fate on October 26th, with about 54% of Canadians voting against it and with clear majorities opposing it in Quebec and in each of the four Western provinces. This takes us back then, finally, to where we started this series, with the Charlottetown Accord dead and with no realistic chance of reviving it. But the thing is, the Accord was not the only thing that died on October 26th, because what also seemed to die was Canadians' collective sense that they could formally change their constitution. And in this respect, maybe the most enduring legacy of Charlottetown was that after a very busy decade, Canadians stopped talking. They stopped talking about national constitutional renewal, which means that they stopped talking about how to solve their constitutional problems. And for many people, this is a real abject shame, not just because Canada still has deep constitutional problems to fix, but also because the Charlottetown era was an era of energy and vibrancy, an era when Canadians across the country talked to one another about how to structure their collective future, and even more fundamentally, about what it really means to be Canadian. On the other hand, though, for Professor Peter Russell, 
Canada is actually better off now that Canadians have stopped talking about the Constitution and have stopped trying to change the Constitution. And I want to end this episode and indeed end this series by handing over now to Professor Russell, who warns us about the dangers of looking for some grand instantaneous fix to Canada's constitutional problems. And so here's Professor Russell to end the episode and end the series. When people are dealing with the Constitution, uh, they're not like law professors or even law students. They don't look at the text and the fine print. They, they do it in terms of slogans and that touch their identity uh, and, and who they are. Uh, and uh, that's uh, the danger uh, of uh, these big efforts. And we have been, I think, stronger as a country, more together, more able to do things together, be it handling the pandemic now or anything else, since uh, we abandoned these efforts at mega constitutional change. And our constitution is always changing in small and interesting ways, but we gave up the quest for a grand fix of everything that keeps us apart and just became very pragmatic and moving day to day. And I think we're more solid as a country than we have been since the 1950s. That's a big statement, but I really feel that. Thank you.